Hello, and welcome to the Intuitive Rising Podcast. I am so glad you're here. I'm your host, Amy Brooks, and up until about five years ago, I was just your average mom of three. It was after the sudden loss of my father that my life changed forever, and the rising within me began. In this podcast, we will talk all things spiritual and healing through a very grounded and relatable approach. I hope you'll join me remembering who you always were as we rise together. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Intuitive Rising podcast. Wow. This podcast has been a long time coming, a long time coming. So if you are brand new to me, welcome. I am so glad you're here. Created this community, this podcast for you, for all of my fellow seekers. So I'm going to start this episode kind of giving a background, um, an introduction to who the heck I am and what the intuitive rising is all about. Why, why that name? Why did I come up with that name for my branding, for my business? I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about my backstory and really how I got to here in a, in a kind of condensed version. I do want to expand on this and I will. I plan to expand on this in coming episodes because my primary focus with this podcast is not only you know sharing wisdom, sharing different modalities, healing modalities that have been working for me or that work for my clients or talking about what I'm currently learning about, what I'm currently down the rabbit hole learning about, hyper fixated on. I'm going to talk about all those things for sure. But I also want this podcast to be really rooted and steeped in storytelling. I've learned over the last couple of years that I am a natural storyteller. I love, love, love to share and I love to hear other people. I like to go there. I'm not a surface kind of gal. I like to go under the surface. I like to get to know people. I want other people to get to know me. What better way than to host a solo podcast? (laughs) I want to tell you if you're somebody that is sitting on sharing your voice, sharing your story, there's never been a better time than to do so. And I hope that over the course of this podcast, you are encouraged to step into sharing more of yourself in some capacity, going under the surface, digging deep. So who am I? Well, my name is Amy Brooks, as most of you would know. My umbrella, you know, my my business name is The Intuitive Rising. Now, it hasn't always been the intuitive rising. I guess I'll start here. Um, When I first launched my business, my name was, my business name was Medium Amy Brooks. And over time, that evolved to the intuitive rising. And the reason it did is because I had this dream. I was receiving downloads from Spirit about creating this community for like-minded individuals Eventually, the dream, the goal, the manifestation is to have a place, a tangible material place where people can gather, Um, be it an event, a weekend retreat. I don't really know. That's there's a lot of moving parts with that still. But in the meantime, I thought, what can I do in the meantime to get the ball rolling, right? To take some messy action. I'm looking down at my um, little daily calendar that I have here. 
you might have seen um, a calendar like this. It Every day you tear off the paper and there's a new message on each day of the year. And today's message, the day that I'm recording this episode, it says, intention without action is just a wish. A goal only comes to life when you decide to pursue it. Um, yes, yes, <laughs> that's perfectly aligned with what I'm saying. So I decided to take some messy action. What can I do? How do I show intention for now? In the meantime, and I decided to create an online community and this podcast is to go hand in hand with that. So in my little intro, in this first last week, I posted a little intro to this podcast, talked a little bit about that, talked about how I created a private Facebook group called the Intuitive Rising Community. You're welcome there. It is a small, inclusive, like-minded, safe community where we can chat about things. You can drop your question in there um, if you're wanting some guidance about something, um, about, you know, your spirituality, what you're dreaming about, um, questions about, uh, does anybody else experience this? That's really a dream come true for me. And so created it about two months ago, you know, before I launched this podcast, just to kind of get the ball rolling. And it's already got over 100 members. And it's very active and busy and I love it and people are starting to come out of their shell and ask questions and be really interactive in there so that makes me happy you're welcome there if that's something that you're looking for if you're looking for an online community and you are on Facebook join us so that's kind of why my name has been the intuitive I changed to the intuitive rising decided to name this podcast that because it it goes hand in hand it speaks to this really community minded goal um and I just wanted you to be able to find me easily. Also, when you think about the name, the intuitive rising, what does that mean? It's about intuitives rising. It's about intuitive people becoming empowered. Have you ever heard, I'm sure you've heard of that saying before, to be so sensitive is a blessing and a curse. I'm here to say, oh, but is it a curse? Oh, but is it? I certainly would agree that in past years, I'd say up until maybe like five years ago, four years ago, I would have wholeheartedly agreed. It is a blessing and a curse to feel everything so very deeply. But now, with four years of experience under my belt, I think to myself, oh no, it's a blessing. It is a blessing, my friend. So if you are a highly sensitive person, an empath, an intuitive, who feels everything all of the time, I want you to know I am here to help you with that. I'm here to empower you and encourage you and to begin to unravel the gifts within your sensitivity. I'm going to go way back here. I'm going to talk a little bit about really what led me here. In hindsight, you know, there's this gift of hindsight that when we get to a certain point in our journey, we can look back and we're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. You know, I recently saw this meme on, um, I think it was on Instagram, and it was like this picture of Sheldon from The Big Bang Theory. And there was four pictures of him, and it said, your spiritual awakening be like and then there was a picture of him going, why, why, why? And then in the final fourth picture, it said, oh, that's why. And that's, you know, what hindsight's all about. It's like, okay, now that I'm here at this point in my journey, I can look back and go, oh, okay, that's why. And I promise you, every single one of us will get little increments, little moments of, ah, okay, that's why. 
So I want to go back a little bit now that I'm where I am. Not yet where I'm going, but not where I've been. I'm kind of in this juicy middle. We're always evolving. We're always growing. Um, I want to share a little bit about where I've been. And as we go, we'll share where we want to go. Where I've been. So I'm the oldest of three children. I am always very, very highly sensitive. Felt everything around me. Felt everybody's stuff all the time. That was very overwhelming for me. I grew up with, you know, working parents. Both parents worked. Um, I was alone a lot as us latchkey kids of the 80s and 90s were um, I experienced some trauma in my early years. I won't get into that too personally because, you know, it involves other people and things. But I did experience some childhood tra tra traumatic events. And I never talked about them. I never shared anything about them. I kept it inside. And around that time, soon after that time, I began to really struggle with my physical body. You know, I was coming of age, right? Like, I mean, I'm still pretty young at this point. We're talking six, seven years old. Things are, you're starting to notice your body. You're a little bit more aware of your body at this age than maybe you were at five or four. But I noticed my, my eating habits began to change. I actually began to kind of overeat, to binge, as I would now call that, come home, grab some stuff, hide out in my room, in the safety of my room with my books and my cat. And I, I was eating more than I should have. And now in hindsight, I can see I was doing that in direct response to what had happened to me. And it was a way for me to um, keep myself safe. I was keeping myself safe under the layers of the weight that I had gained so that that wouldn't happen again. And that only added to my feelings of being an outsider or not belonging or there being something wrong with me. Just, I've always really felt like a black sheep and I feel like a lot of you guys that are listening may also have felt this way. With around that time also, I had another traumatic event and that was something that I've been quite public about I experienced a near-death experience at age six and I can remember this in vivid detail I was about yeah I was about six six getting close to six and a half I think I it was the weekend my mom was home she was cleaning the house I was watching Annie the original Annie from like the early 80s the mid 80s and I was laying down on the couch and I was jumping around but also watching Annie and my mom had brought in a snack for me I still remember the snack it was ants on a log you know like celery with peanut butter and my I remember my mom saying don't jump around don't lay down when you're eating make sure you're sitting up and then she left the room she was cleaning some part of the house and the next thing I know, I'm choking. And I don't remember the panic, although I'm sure there was a lot of panic. I don't remember that feeling. I just know all of a sudden, oh no, like I, I'm in trouble here. I also don't know if I went to find my mom or if my mom found me choking. 
what I do know, what I do remember is being taken out to outside to the front of our house on the steps and my mom doing the Heimlich. I, we lived right across the street from a big high-rise apartment building. And I remember my mother screaming for help. Help, help, she's choking. Now, as this was happening, I was not really in my body anymore. It was like I was given being given a bird's eye view of the situation unfolding. As if I was observing it happening. I could see my mother's face. I could see my face. I could see my lips kind of turning blue, purpley. I could see that I wasn't, you know, con like aware. I wasn't conscious. I could see that she was crying and panicking. But I wasn't afraid. I, I felt it's this really interesting thing because for the, that period of time, you know, leading up to this near-death experience when I was struggling with my body and I was overeating and I was trying to disconnect from my body. I was trying to like be out of my body because at that point, something that had happened to my body caused me trauma. So I was trying to disconnect from it. And in this moment, I fully was disconnected from it. It was like that was me, but it wasn't me. I was observing me. I was weightless, I was warm, it felt like I was floating. It was not scary. I didn't see the light at the end of the tunnel as some people talk about. I don't think I got that far. I don't think I got so far into it that the light at the tunnel was there. Maybe everybody has a different experience when they have a near-death experience. I know that I've studied near-death experience. I've watched a lot of shows, documentaries, read books. I know that there's some commonalities that people often describe. This weightless feeling, this bird's eye view, certainly seems like a commonality between many people that have experienced an NDE. That's a near-death experience. I might use NDE moving forward. But the light of the tunnel is not something that I remember experiencing. What I do remember, though, is seeing many, many, many people around me and feeling their energy and there being a sense of communication with them telepathically. So their mouths weren't moving. I couldn't hear their voice as you can hear mine right now. But they were speaking to me. And one in particular, I remember, kind of came a little bit closer to me. This is really hard to understand because it's not as if her physical body, you know, her, the tangible, the bones of her walked before me as you would walk before me now if you were in front of me. It was her energy that came forward. And what I sensed from her was a real maternal kind of love for me, which was wonderful. I didn't question it. I just knew she must love me because I feel love from her. And I heard telepathically, it's not time. You have to go back. It's not time. And the next thing I remember is being awake and being Amy, being six-year-old Amy in my physical body again. 
the funny thing about this is that I don't remember anybody ever talking about it. I don't remember having a big old conversation with my parents. I don't remember talking to my friends about it. I do remember journaling about it. That's something I was doing even at the age of six, seven years old. I was journaling. I was writing storyteller to my bones. I never talked about it. This is a, this is a common theme. You're going to see this common theme as I tell you my story. I didn't talk about it. Fast forward, years go by. I gain more and more and more weight. I isolate myself more. I begin, I have some friends, you know, I have some core group of friends. Um, I always felt a little bit like a black sheep, like I didn't fully belong, like I had to put a mask on. But I was always kind of gregarious. I was always, I guess I would call myself an ambivert. I still think I'm an ambivert. Around certain people, I can be very, very outgoing and extroverted. Around others, I can be very, very introverted. There is this core introvertedness with me, though, in the sense that I need downtime. I thrive in alone time. I'm my own best company. I always have been. I'm safe. I'm safe to me. I always felt safe to me. As the years continue, I remember talking with some school friends, wanting, just desperately wanting to connect about deeper issues than who likes who on the school ground or the newest, hottest toy. I wanted to talk about reincarnation, about souls. I remember asking somebody, they're telling, I think, I don't know if it was a question or if it was a statement, but I remember kind of presenting this idea to a fellow classmate. And we're talking about like grade four or five, right? Like I'm like 10 years old here. I think that there's probably a finite number of souls and we just keep coming back. We just keep reincarnating. And of course, you know, this friend being like, okay, right? Like totally over their head. <laughs> Didn't pay any mind to me. But this gives you an example of what kind of child <laughs> I was and what kind of person I still am I've always been a seeker I want to go deep I want to know more very very curious I really threw myself into reading so as far as education and schoolwork went I wasn't always like the best student I was kind of like that C plus B kind of student so I always got along just fine but I think it's probably I could have done better <laughs> but I was always like very highly distracted I wanted to do what I wanted to do if I was learning something that I was interested in I could have got like an A plus <laughs> I later discovered that once I headed off to university and was able to choose my courses I did very very well when I could do that but you know I really just wanted to read I wanted to read I wanted to write I wanted to listen to music I wanted to write poetry that's really my early teenage years. Around the age of 16 is the time when I had my first major boyfriend. There was a few little crushes and things before that, but like major high school love um, kind of thing happened when I was 16. Um, this relationship 
you know, in hindsight, I can see the lessons within this relationship, why it happened, why we were brought together. I still, to this day, there's like a feeling of kinship with this person. We are still in touch. We are, um, there's some sort of bond here that really is at a soul level. And I'm going to talk about, you know, as we move forward in future episodes, really like about soulmates and how soulmates aren't just romantic and they aren't always just really smooth sailing relationships. Often our soulmates can provoke growth within us and it, it, it comes through struggles and challenges. So this relationship lasted for four years. So it took me from 16 to 20. I now had a new focus. It was no longer food. It was no longer obsessively reading. It was now this person. I didn't know who I was outside of this person. This is a time when you're kind of gaining traction and learning who you are and discovering your identity. My identity, I believed, was in this other person and my relationship with them. I lost myself in this relationship. I'm not going to get too, too deep into those details as it does involve another person. Um, but I will say that I lost myself in this relationship and that it was not always a healthy one. The relationship ended when I was 20. It did not end because I chose it to end. It ended because that person ended it. Now, this sent me into the depths of despair. This was depression. This was not my first experience with depression, but it certainly was, you know, a real huge moment one of those pivotal moments when you look back and you think, yes, that was when everything began to change. So things really fell apart around me. I developed, again, an unhealthy relationship to my body, but this time it was in controlling what I was putting into it. I was not eating very well, not eating as often as I should. I was doing a lot of partying, doing a lot of drinking, as we can do in our early 20s, but especially in the throes of heartache and heartbreak and an identity crisis. A few years go by and I'm really just kind of grasping at straws at trying to put my life back together. This breakup was extremely damaging to my self-worth because I didn't have anything outside of it. So I felt as if I was completely starting over. This feeling that I had throughout childhood that I didn't really ever talk about, that feeling of like not having control but desperately wanting to control in order to protect me from being hurt, that was... I can look back and it was anxiety and I can look back and I can see that I was always an anxious child. I was always an anxious person. And this moment was really a wake up call to that, to that anxiety, to that feeling of 
not being okay with just sitting with myself. It was so uncomfortable. It was like, if I'm not with that person, if I'm not trying to be with that person, if I'm not like doing something, who am I? Again, I didn't talk about it. I just tried to busy myself. I tried to numb myself so I wasn't feeling anything. I think maybe a year after this happened, I went to my family doctor in the, you know, the plan was to just kind of talk to her about getting on potentially an anxiety medication because I had a kind of aha light bulb moment that I wasn't doing so well, that all of this running around and trying to numb myself was detrimental and that I needed to deal with what was happening. And I thought, okay, medication, perfect. I'll just slap a Band-Aid on it. Now, I'm not saying this in any sort of judgmental way whatsoever. I'm telling you this from like where I was and my mindset about that then, not how I feel now at 43 years old. But I, the point of me saying that is that I was looking for one more cover-up. I didn't want to do the work. I didn't want to heal. I didn't want to go deep. All of a sudden for this person that like wants to go deep, deep, deep. All of a sudden I was like, I, I don't want to go deep. I can't. I need to protect myself from what might come up. Now during this appointment, she... It was kind of unorthodox, you know, I think about it, really. Um, it's almost like she took on the role of a counselor here in this in this appointment. And she had said to me, Amy, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to think about the first memory that pops up into your mind and I want you to tell me what it is. And so I was kind of like, okay, you know, like, why? But I did it. I did it. Um... And the first memory that popped up for me was an unexpected one. And I almost felt at first like, am I making this memory up? Because why haven't I ever thought about this before? Like, where is this coming from? But I was hit with like this rush, like the tsunami of emotion as I remembered it and as I verbalized it, as I talked about it. You got to remember all these other things that have happened up until this point, the theme was, but I don't talk about it. And now all of a sudden, I talk about it. And I, I was certain that I was going to drown with the emotion. I was certain that I couldn't recover from the emotion. It was like the floodgates was opened. But I felt safe with my family doctor. And I felt it was the time. I felt it was the right thing to do. So I bring forward, I verbalize this memory, still not totally sure in my logical brain, am I making this up? But like knowing in my body that it was truth. I brought up this memory that happened when I was four years old. It was this memory of being left behind in an environment I shouldn't have been left in for an extended period of time and me feeling confused feeling discarded and feeling abandoned 
and seeing all of a sudden being able to connect, make the connection that this fear of abandonment has always been there. That if I say too much or I am too much or I reveal a little bit too much about myself, I will be discarded. I will be abandoned. This was a huge pivotal moment in my life. This moment was the beginning of my healing journey. In hindsight, I can see that. It also came with a diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder. For the next couple years after this, I really spent a lot of time trying to reconnect back to myself. I was in university at this time. I was doing a certain, uh, there was a certain focus with my degree. And then I decided, is this really what I want to do? No, I'm passionate about psychology. So I changed the total whole focus of my study to psychology. For the next three, four years, I studied psychology. Anything I could learn about psychology, I was like, just couldn't get enough, obsessed with it. Have you ever heard that the best psychologists have been through a lot themselves, trying to make sense of themselves, their life, and the people in their lives? I've heard that before. Now, I'm not a psychologist. I'm going to preface to say I am not. I did earn my undergrad, my bachelor's degree with a major in psychology, and my plan was to become a psychologist, a therapist. But life had other plans, as it often does. I met my husband during my third year of study. I was very adamant that I was not looking for a relationship. I had a lot of walls built up. But, you know, I did agree to go on this blind date with him. And <laughs> by the end of the night, we were dating you know, that was one of those dates that start at eight o'clock and end at three in the morning. You know, um, we met at a coffee shop. I was an hour late. That's a whole other story. He had a birthday gift for me as my birthday was four days before this. And we talked. He didn't know. The funny thing is, is he hadn't ever seen me because it was a blind date. So he did not know what I looked like. And I didn't know what he looked like. I wanted to keep this air of mystery. So all I told him was, I have brown hair and I'll be carrying a pink purse. So I walked in and he looked at me as I walked in the door and I could see this like recognition, like, okay, this is her. And it was a great first date. We stayed in the coffee shop for a few hours. It was snowing. We walked, um, you know, for a couple blocks. We went to a pool hall and we played pool and had a couple beers and we stayed in the pool hall till they closed. And then he walked me home, which was, you know, another probably 20 minute walk away. And before he left, he asked if, you know, he could be my boyfriend. And I agreed despite my mind saying, what are you doing? No, we're not ready for this. I think part of my soul knew that this was going to be it if I agreed to it. And although my ego and my mind and my battered heart was like, 
no, we're not ready for this. My soul was like, oh, but we are. We're ready for this. So it was pretty, it was a whirlwind. Um, we had, uh, he, he basically was at my, my place every day after that. A few months later, bought a condo together. We're living together um, fully uh, within six months. Um, and then kind of shit kind of hit the fan a little bit, I'd say. Um, the whirlwind kind of slowed down a bit. And all of a sudden, we both kind of looked up and thought, are we ready for this? Are we ready for this? Um, you know, and so there was a lot of ups and downs. There was a lot of stuff we went through. We weren't sure. We're very, very opposite. We are, it's funny because like at the core, we have the same values. We want the same things. Um, the, the big major ticket things are the same and we agree on, but our like personalities and our interests, very, very different. Our coping mechanisms, very, very different. So, you know, we were still growing and figuring out who we were as individuals. And then, you know, can these two individuals come together and actually make this thing work in a healthy way? I was very cognizant of the feeling of like, myself being a cycle breaker. I didn't, it's not a word I would have used back then. It's a word that I used to describe myself now with now. But back then it was more like, I know that there's some shit I need to work through. I know there's some stuff that runs through the fam and um, I don't want to do it. I don't want to cope with things this way. I don't want to be this way. So... The universe, you know, I feel like the universe really wanted us to stay together because just as we were kind of falling apart, an unexpected pregnancy happened. So all of a sudden we found ourselves expecting a baby. We were 25 at the time. I was in a brand new job. I had just graduated university, was planning to go. Um, this would have been in the spring. That fall I had planned to take my mat, start my master's so that I could continue my education with the goal of being a psychologist at the end. And, you know, that didn't happen because all of a sudden we were kind of scared shitless, um, having this baby unexpectedly, not having that baby was never an option. I think we both knew that, yeah, like this is what we're going to do. This is what's going to happen. Knowing somewhere that it was what was best for us but also being terrified because we both like to have control of situations. And this was anything but having control of a situation. Now, this pregnancy was a tough one for me. Um, I had a lot of anxiety about, you know, if this relationship was going to be okay, if we were going to make it, if I was going to end up being a single mom. I had anxiety about my health. Because I had been diagnosed with preeclampsia at five months. And I was put on bed rest at five months. So I was worried about that. I was worried about, um, you know, what could happen. I'm, although, like, Google and stuff existed at this time. We're talking about the mid-2000s here. I'm so glad that I didn't get on, the, on my laptop and, like, really dig for information about what was happening to me. Because it probably would have only added to the anxiety. But I... Um, I was really worried about that. Obviously, I was worried about the baby. 
um, how she would do if she would come early because of my, my preeclampsia. Thankfully, everything worked out okay. She was, um, she was, came on term. She was born at 39 weeks and four days, sorry, five days. So only two days early. This was a small miracle considering the issues that I had in my pregnancy. She was a good weight. She was healthy. The, the labor itself was traumatizing, um, in hindsight, you know, at the time I had this mentality about all the struggles and hardships that I'd ever gone through in my life. You know, when I look back and I tell people about certain things that have happened, some people are like, whoa, like this is like a lifetime movie. Like you've been through a lot, but at the time I just kind of soldiered on. I didn't even really take the time to think about how I was feeling or how I was struggling. It was always like this pressure to just like keep going, keep going. Don't talk about it. Just keep going. You're fine. It could always be worse. I was like gaslighting myself. The labor was traumatic. The delivery was traumatic. I felt a sense, a lack of control. I didn't like that feeling of like things just being left to chance. I didn't like not having a plan. I didn't like not being able to control a plan. After she was born, I really hit rock bottom. She is a highly sensitive person. She's now almost an adult. She's 16, almost 17. She's always been a highly sensitive person. She's, very, she's also a very strong-willed person. She's an empath. She feels everything. She's that Pisces sun. She just wanted to be near me 24-7, which I know a lot of babies are. But I've had three babies now. This baby was unlike any of the others. She was just much more sensitive to stimuli, to things. Um, so there was a lot of crying. There was a diagnosis of colic, um, of reflux. There was a whole lot of crying. I couldn't put her down. I, I had gone from being a year before, less than a year before, okay, because we're talking about graduating in May and delivering, graduating university and delivering a baby in February, okay? So we're talking like eight months later, nine months later, being a mother, eight months, nine months previously, being a university student with an identity and with a sense of control over her life and ambition and goals and a routine and all of a sudden being on mat leave with a screaming baby and overwhelming feelings of dread. Months and months and months went by. I did not get help until she was a year old. I don't share this with any pride. I just think, why? Why didn't you get help? Why did you suffer? Why did you not talk about anything? I felt alone in my relationship because I was doing everything, you know, on my own. My, my husband was in the military. He was away working off hour, weird hours. Um, but not only that, it's not that he wouldn't have been involved. It's that I didn't let him get involved. This baby and I were in this real codependent relationship. And from my 
and it wasn't always healthy. And it was because of postpartum anxiety, I had this overwhelming feeling of dread that if she was out of my sight for one second, that something bad would happen. Anytime I closed my eyes, I would imagine terrible things. I remember one, in for, in for, for example, of like closing my eyes for just a brief second and seeing like her stroller just kind of like roll off the side of a cliff, you know, like things like this, so upsetting that just kind of jerk you and make you feel like you're going crazy. But all of these things just reiterated the fact to me in the mental state I was in, you can't let her out of your sight. You can trust no one. So I began to isolate myself. My weight was out of control again. I was numbing myself with food. I was not getting enough sleep. I was not getting enough exercise because of my mental state, but also because I was exhausted and the trauma that I had experienced, the physical trauma I had experienced in my labor. It was just a really terrible time. If you are or go, if you have experienced postpartum depression, anxiety, my heart goes out to you. If you are listening and you're experiencing this now, don't be like me. Don't soldier on. Don't try to tough it out. Get help. Reach out. It doesn't have to be that hard. Okay. I get through. I soldier on. Baby number two comes. That pregnancy, I felt this overwhelming desire that I needed to take control in some way. Thankfully, I had a very healthy pregnancy, so I was, um, you know, able to deliver how I wanted to. I hired a doula so that I could hopefully succeed in my goal of having a medication-free type of birth. Thankfully, that worked out. I did. And everything went well. And now I had two little kids. Around this time, it was actually in my early pregnancy with that second baby who is now my 14-year-old son. I lost my uncle. So this would have been my dad's youngest. Not youngest, but I think younger. It was his younger brother. Forgetting the order of the siblings. But he was younger than my dad. He was like just my favorite. I can't describe it. There was just something there with him. I always loved him so much, looked up to him. I thought he was the nicest man. He passed away suddenly a couple days before Christmas in his mid-40s, just a couple years older than I am now, of a massive heart attack. And this was just my first real experience with death. And it was traumatic and so upsetting. But, you know, I was, I, I literally discovered within weeks that I was expecting my little guy. And then during that time period as well, a few, just a few weeks after my uncle passed away, my beloved maternal grandfather passed away. Now he was like a dad to me. It was really, really difficult that he had passed away as well. And I remember when I was like, I had to fly to another province for my grandfather's funeral. And I remember during this period being very kind of like in my new, newly pregnant in the first trimester. And I 
ask my grandmother and my mother, do you mind watching uh, my daughter? You know, I, I used her name. I'm not going to use it here for her privacy. Do you mind watching her while I go have like a 20 minute nap? I just can't keep my eyes open. You know what that first trimester, <laughs> that fatigue in first trimester is like, it's like you are swimming underwater. And they were like, yeah, yeah, of course. So I laid down and I immediately went into this like very deep sleep and I experienced a spiritual visitation. Now this is the first spiritual visitation that I can like consciously remember. It was my uncle. He showed up for me energetically, much like that um, elderly relative did in my near-death experience where she just kind of came forward to me and communicated telepathically. Same kind of experience, but I'm dreaming. I'm sleeping. He's here in front of me. I can see him. Okay, there's like no color around him. It's just like as if he's in blackness, but he shows up in like technicolor. And I remember going, oh my God, I'm so glad you're here. How are you? Are you okay? And him saying, I'm okay. I'm okay. He told me that I was having a little boy. At that point, I didn't know. I didn't even have an inkling yet. But he's like, you're having a little boy. And he's like, I want to tell you a little bit about what happens. And what he told me during this interaction was that my hunch about coming back after you pass and coming back to another life was correct. So that's how I always kind of felt in my heart of hearts. That's what I knew as truth in my bones. Now, if you believe something differently, I want you to trust what you believe in your bones. Okay? And part of this journey, this intuitive rising, is in you discovering what is truth in your bones, even if it's something different than someone else's. Okay, But in my bones, this validated to me, yes, yes, I knew it, that's what happens. And he said, you, as the soul, need, you have specific things you're supposed to learn. There's lessons you're supposed to learn and things you're supposed to do. And most of us, I would say now that I, that I do the work that I do, none of us are figuring it out the first go around. And he said, you know, when you don't, fin when you don't figure it out, you do come back. And there is a choice in the matter of what and who you're coming back as. And he explained to me, he said, you can choose a very short life as a butterfly, as an insect, as a pet. Or you can choose to come back as human and continue your lessons. There's value in every single life, even in that little spider. There's value that that little energetic source that makes that butterfly or that spider, there's purpose in it, I truly believe. So he explained to me that he hadn't figured everything out, he hadn't learned all his lessons, that he was coming back as my son. Now this is a, like, there's so many things that happened after this. There were so many other dreams that happened during this pregnancy and things that happened after the fact and interactions I had with family that will just blow your mind and I will share them, but that could be a whole episode. So just hold tight for more of that. This is my Uncle John. So if I'm referring to my Uncle John in the future, this is who I'm speaking about. 
So I woke up with this sense of like, whoa, like I knew that that was truth. I knew that really happened. I knew that he visited me, his spirit visited. I knew that this little guy in my belly was a boy. And I knew that there was a connection between him and John, right? His soul, his essence was living on again as this little guy, which is just crazy and magical, right? But there was such a peace around it. Years go by, lots of things happen. It seemed like every time I had planned to go back to school, because my goal was always, okay, I'm going to get the kids off to school, right? I didn't go back to work, to that job that I had started right after I graduated university, um, after my year of mat leave was up with my daughter because of my postpartum anxiety, because of my feeling of dread that I couldn't let her out of my sight. So I didn't go back to work. I chose not to go back to work. I was a stay-at-home mom. Then we had number two. Just decided, hey, this works for me. This works for our family. My husband being in the military and, you know, traveling and schedule issues. I'm like, this just works for us. So we're going to do it. Um, and I kept thinking, back burner. Going to go back to school. Going to go back to school. Anytime I ever attempted it, something happened. It was either I get pregnant the first time. And then no word of a lie, plan to do it again, get pregnant the second time, and then plan to do it third time, and we get an unexpected posting message. We got posted um, away from my home province, away from everyone and everything I've ever known. This was unexpected. We got this message in June, and we were expected to be here, where I am now, across the country in two months and um i felt a sense of spinning out of control some anxiety there but it was happening so quickly right like when you have to move that quickly and you have to organize and and do all the things you're doing there's not a lot of time to wallow there's not a lot of time to stress but i did feel overwhelmingly anxious but i also remember the sense of calm coming over me um, and just recently it came up in my Facebook memories and I was like, oh yeah, I remember seeing that when this, when this happened, I remember having this clarity, this insight pop in there. There's a reason there, there's a person, there's an event, there's an experience. There's something that's going to come out of this move that is meant to happen and you have to allow it to happen. So get out of your own way just trust and go. Not like I had any choice in the matter anyways, right? <laughs> but that helped me have some sort of like, okay, like there's purpose here, there's meaning. We got to go. So we did. And within a few months, I felt lost. It's in this new province, this new home, new neighborhood. The youngest, the little boy I had just talked about a moment ago, he had started school. Like, so we moved the end of August. A week later, he turned five and he started school. So now all of a sudden, I'm like alone in a new province, a new city. And I don't know what I'm supposed to do because everything I've done for the last seven years, which was stay-at-home mom, which was entertain and, you know, do things with my children all day, they were at school. I was like, well, who am I and what am I supposed to do now? It was around this time that I started to feel like, oh, I want another baby. 
And my husband, in his infinite wisdom, said to me, I'm open to it, but I want you to wait a little bit because I want you to make sure that it's not just stemming from loneliness and feeling like you don't know what to do with yourself and it's more because you actually want this third baby. Now, I had wanted a third all along. Like the first two are two years apart. I would really would have liked to have the third two years apart as well, um, but it just didn't happen that way. So, you know, I, I did want, I knew I wanted the third, but I also was taking his guidance to heart and I wanted to make sure. So a few months go by and I start to find myself a little bit. I was doing a lot of volunteering, uh, making some friends in the neighborhood. And I said to him, you know what, like I'm doing this for the right reasons. I really would like to have this third baby. So the first, like literally, we won't get too TMI here, but like literally no, no issues conceiving. Um, first, first attempt was successful and, um, we got pregnant and I was very excited. My due date was going to be, um, literally just a couple of days after the last little guy we had. So I was like, okay, they're going to have close birthdays. This is going to be great. Um, I felt, I felt this sense of this is a boy immediately. I also felt like I kept seeing a certain name all over the place. So on TV, in a magazine, on a street sign, you know, like wherever it was, I kept seeing this name over and over and over again. And this was a name that I liked and I wanted to use for him. And it was Henry. So I kept seeing Henry everywhere. And I'm like, oh my God, okay, universe, like Henry's coming. Now, around the 10-week mark, I started to feel like something might be wrong because I just, I didn't, I didn't feel him energetically. Like the other two, I, I didn't mention, but like with my daughter, when, when, he ha when we had her and she was this unexpected pregnancy, I knew I was pregnant before I even tested. Like I was like only should have only been like a week pregnant and knew in my my gut that I was pregnant and took an early response test and sure enough was pregnant but I was like three weeks pregnant um and, and the reason I knew is because I had a dream about her and it was very very vivid and I thought oh my god I'm pregnant um so I always dreamt about my babies and it was usually the first sign that I had to tell me you're pregnant but with this baby, I didn't ever dream about him. And it really unsettled me because I thought, why? Like, why can't, why isn't that happening? There must be something wrong. So I started to feel very, very anxious again. And I went to my family doctor. This is now a new family doctor because we don't live, we're in a different province now. And she was new to me. And I remember asking her for some blood work and some various tests. And I was told, no, it's not really necessary. Just wait a little bit longer. You're only a little bit away from, you know, being halfway and getting those ultrasounds. Everything will be fine. Don't worry. Right. Um, I wish I had pressed it further, but I didn't because I thought I'm just being crazy. Like, how am I going to say to the doctor that I think something's wrong because I'm not dreaming about them, about the baby. A couple weeks later, my father was having surgery. This was a big surgery. They had found a little nodule of lung cancer um, and they were removing it in the hopes that it would not have spread and they would have caught it early. 
So I took a plane and flew back to my home province. And I um, was there in the hospital. We were waiting. There was my siblings and my mother. And we were waiting for him to go in. And while he went, when he was in surgery, um, I started to bleed. And I immediately thought, oh my God. I knew it. This is my worst nightmare. I'm now away from my husband and kids. I'm away from like my home base now. I'm traveling, living out of a suitcase, sitting in a hospital emergency room, and I'm miscarrying my baby. I went into panic mode. I called the local maternity hospital that was just down the road, explained the situation. I was met with compassion, but was also told, you know, you can't be seen until you're 20 weeks. You're not yet 20 weeks. You have to go to emerge. You have to go to the regular emergency room. So I did. I sat in emergency all afternoon, was not seen, ended up leaving after about five hours because I just couldn't sit there anymore. I was like spinning out of control. My dad came out of surgery. He was okay. We stayed there for a bit. And then I drove back to um, like my mom and dad's house with my mom. And I got home and I thought, mom, like, I hate to do this to you because I know we've had a really long day, but could you drop me off at the hospital? So this was like a hospital local to her. She lived about an hour away from um, where my dad had had surgery. And she said, yeah, like, let's go now. So I sat there. Um, it's funny I'm mentioning this because just, just a couple of days ago, I was rooting through paperwork looking for something. And I found the... Um, the information from that hospital visit like that that health facility had faxed the information to my doctor but also a copy to me so I was able to see the, about like what the doctor had written uh, and it said in it like possible atop topic pregnancy um, they were worried about it so I was um, there's blood work and things like that um, it was like midnight now at this point a small town little hospital there was no ultra sonographer there um, but the doctor knew that I was like kind of spiraling out of control with my anxiety and I was very upset about this so he actually um, called that person and got them to come in in the middle of the night so that they could do this scan for me turned out that I was having a um, what is called a blighted ovum so this is where you are um, like there has been a pregnancy, there's a sac, the placenta, there is the amniotic fluid, um, but there's no baby inside of it. So my placenta was growing, which is why I was experiencing pregnancy symptoms. The sac was growing as it should, but there was no baby in it anymore. So at some point soon after conception, my body probably realized this wasn't a viable pregnancy and would have absorbed. But the odd thing about it is that my body, despite that pregnant, that baby no longer being there and growing, the placenta and the sac continued to grow. Um, so it was what's called a missed miscarriage. And, um, you know, it's just kind of a cruel twist of fate that my body was like, no, 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 I'm still pregnant there's no baby. So that was devastating. Honestly, I, I, I was completely devastated by this. I flew home on the way home while I'm, you know, however many thousands of feet in the air, uh, the bleeding starts more heavily. I get home and, um, 
yeah, I think I just basically lived in the bathtub for a week, allowed nature to take its course and cried and just grief stricken um, that I was losing my baby. And it took, after that I became then obsessed with having another baby. Those of you who have experienced a baby loss, um, my heart goes out to you. And I know you get what I mean when you're like, now all you can think about is conceiving again. But it didn't, it didn't happen for over like a year and a half. And I had to, I think there's been this common theme in my life of not knowing who I am and like not having a strong sense of identity and then wrapping myself up in the identity of like other people or my role to that other person and like struggling with myself and who I am. And so there's been a lack of like coping mechanisms when things happen outside of my control. And I feel like a lot of that what, just, what happened like with this pregnancy loss was to teach me to surrender, to trust, and to really figure out who I was outside of mom, outside of wife. And so after this experience, um, I did experience baby Henry's spirit. Um, I did dream of him often. I knew that he was he. I knew that he was Henry. Um, I felt him. I was comforted by him. I started to make myself a priority. I got a part-time job. I took up running again. I took up biking. I was filling my days with work and volunteering, um, being the best mom I, can, I could possibly be. All the while, I was feeling extremely homesick still. It had been a few years at this point that we had been away. And, um, eventually I made peace, you know, I kind of, I, conception wasn't happening. We always were, um, pretty fertile, right? Like we never had any problem conceiving before. So all of a sudden it wasn't happening. And I thought maybe it's just not going to happen and there's nothing I can do about it. And I got to the point where I just kind of went, there's nothing I can do about it. So, you know, I just need to move on from that. And as is often the case when we do that, then I got pregnant. So this baby I had dreams of like right at the beginning, but interestingly enough, I had a dream of a boy and a dream of a girl. So I'm like, well, I, I don't know anymore because last time, uh, each time I was pregnant, I knew right away. This time I was like, I don't know, but I think that's kind of meaningful and purposeful because I don't think I'm supposed to know because this one, we're going to have a surprise. We're not going to know. And we did not. He was born 41 weeks and one day later, my latest baby and my fastest labor. We had a home birth. It was wonderfully empowering. After the experience I had in the first one, it was exactly what my soul needed um, to heal that trauma from the first birth, I, I feel, and like to feel empowered in myself and I felt connected to my body again and I felt like a superwoman. And now around this time I had met a friend. We we actually met the week that we got pregnant. Like we each got pregnant 
both of us met. Um, she was about to move away and we um, kind of bonded and we even talked about having another baby and um, kind of like wishing that would happen and then we both would have conceived within the like a couple days of each other and we bonded during this pregnancy we talked all the time and shared things about the pregnancy babies were born um, a week apart from each other now around this time she started to go through a bit of a spiritual awakening where she was connecting the dots that she was a medium and I was extremely interested in everything she had to say so I was like a little bit of her guinea pig at times and um, she would read for me and bring through different things and you know it was always interesting and accurate um, and I remember things starting to awaken inside of me like oh I think I think I'm like this too the next year so we're now in 2017 I remember talking this is funny actually so that the the high school first love boyfriend that I talked about that we were I was with from 16 to 20 I was chatting to him and I think we were on like MSN mess not MSN messenger sorry um that's that's a way that I met my husband that's all that's very old school no we were on Facebook messenger I believe and we we're just kind of chatting like hey how what's going on what's new and all of a sudden I got this feeling this overwhelming feeling that his father was with me now his father had passed away um, I don't know how, how long before this, but like within a few years, a year or two. And I said, you know, I don't know how you're going to feel about this, but like, I kind of feel like your dad might be with me. And he's like, really? And I said, yeah, are you okay with me? Like sharing what's coming through? And he was like, yeah. And I shared a few messages. I shared that I kept hearing a song playing over and over again. Um, and then he had said, oh my goodness, like I'm literally learning to play that song on my guitar right now and I thought okay well I just feel like your dad just wants to let you know that he knows and that he loves you you know and and shared that with him and I was like okay so that's how it feels when spirit comes in interesting still not connecting the dots that like maybe this isn't something that everybody experiences um still didn't talk about it right we got this theme of but I didn't talk about it <laughs> um Moments go by. A few months later, I met a new friend in a coffee shop downtown. I had a new baby, my little one, the youngest. He, another son, was about six months old at this point. Um, ordered a latte or something, was sitting down. I ordered first, and then she um, ordered and, and was walking towards the table. And as soon as she sat down, I thought, she's going to have another baby. So I kind of looked at her. She, I guess I had a weird look on my face because she went, what? And I was like, I don't know if I can share this. I don't know if I should. And she's like, what? And I said, this is really personal. And she's like, it's okay. I'm an open book. Just ask me. And I said, are you trying to have another baby? And her face kind of like just, you could see like the blood drain out of her face a little bit. because She was not expecting that. And she's like, why do you ask? And I said, well, as I'm looking at you, it's like to the left of you. I see a baby and it's a girl baby and I just feel like she's coming to you soon and she's like oh my god Amy this is like wild right so she shared with me that um they like they were trying they hadn't even talked to anybody about it nobody knew in the world but them 
And I said, okay, well, like, I feel like you're going to be successful. I feel like that little one's coming. And she's like, okay, right? Like, I don't know what she really thought about it. Um, but she was like, okay, cool. A couple months later, sure enough, she's like, Amy, guess what? Little girl. Um, and so, you know, like things were happening in 2017, certainly, where I was like awakening to what always was inside of me. But January 2018, so five years ago, this month, my dad passed away very suddenly. He passed away. He had a, a day surgery, a simple day surgery, had some really strange complications. And he ended up passing away in the hospital. My mom discovered him. He had been gone, I don't know how long, I don't know how many minutes had passed, but when she alerted the medical staff that came in, began some life, save, like they were trying to bring him back, right, some CPR, worked on him for 45 minutes, eventually got his heart beating again, and put him on life support. They were told, my mom, my siblings were told that this was not going to be a happy ending. You know, he essentially was put on life support so that the family could say goodbye but he had been without oxygen for far too long and he was not going to survive. So I had to say goodbye on the phone because remember I live away. I live about 1500 kilometers away. I could have driven a couple hours to the nearest airport and then flown in and then driven a couple hours from that airport to him. But the people that were there said, I think you should do this over the phone because I don't think he's going to be here if you fly. I think he's going to pass before that happens. And so you really should try to do this now. And so I did. You know, how, do, how does one prepare to say goodbye to their father on the phone um, when you're not expecting him to pass away? But I did. And as I'm, you know, hyperventilating and sobbing and saying my goodbyes, um, I was given this bird's eye view of the room with the door number, with the nurse's name on the whiteboard, with who was in the room, with where his bed was, you know, in, in comparison to where the window was. Like I knew the outline of the room, the setup of the room. I knew who was in the room and what they were wearing. And um, I was like, how do I know this? Like what is happening? Why am I seeing this? And then it was like I was receiving messages from him and it was telepathic, the same as I had with my uncle in the dream, the same as I had had with who I now know as my great, great, great grandmother when I had the near-death experience, the same kind of experience in three different ways. It was like his energy telepathically said, I don't want to go, but I have to go. It is my time. I wish I didn't have to go, but I have to go and I can't fight it. I have to go. But I am going to not leave today. They're going to tell you that I'm going to pass today. I'm not going to. I'm going to wait till tomorrow. And I'm doing that so that you guys know that I fought like hell for you. 
And so I remember sharing this message, but almost like, I mean, when you're going through this, like the people in the room, when you think about my mom, who's losing her husband to 40 years, unexpectedly, my other siblings, my sister was pregnant with twins at this time. You know, you think about it, it's like you're in an uh, out of body experience, right? So I can tell you these things and you can like not even really absorb what's happening. We don't talk about it. Do you sense a theme here? We don't talk about it right away at least. But I was experiencing his spirit that after that day, and he passed the next day, it just didn't stop. His messages to me, his connection to me, it just didn't stop. I wrote his obituary. I heard him tell me what memories he wanted included. When I flew down there days after his passing to help my mom with preparations, he I was laying on the couch in their living room one night trying to fall asleep and I heard, I felt this inner knowing and I heard, go get that book. So there was a book that was stacked under like a bunch of other books, kind of haphazardly placed on a ledge. And I went over and I just kind of took it out and it was a book about birds. And I thought, okay, I didn't even know my dad was interested in birds. Okay, cool. And I heard, open the book. And I opened the book, right? There's no markers in it, no pages turned down. I opened the book. The page I'm opening, I opened to, is a page about pileated woodpeckers. Okay, so those are the woodpeckers that have the red on their head. That's what makes them that certain type of woodpecker. And I thought, oh, okay, weird. Then I noticed as I'm turning the pages that that is the only page in the book where the name of the bird at the top of the page was highlighted. So he had highlighted it. I don't know why. I don't know if he spotted one. My parents lived, lived rurally, so they had a lot of forest around them. I don't know if he saw one and then highlighted it to say that he saw it. I don't know why it was highlighted, but it was highlighted. The next day, a friend of mine, I didn't tell anybody this, nobody. I took a picture of it, of the book. I didn't tell anybody this at all. The next day, a friend of mine said, Amy, I just sent you a video by text. I don't know why I feel like this is for you, but it's for you. And it was two pileated woodpeckers on her um, clothesline like post, close to her kitchen window, looking in at her. There's two of them and they were like just looking at her and she's like, I don't know why. I had this inner knowing that I had to send this to you. And I was like, oh my God. And I told her and she's like, that's crazy. Repeat, 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 repeat. He never stopped communicating with me. Never. A year goes by. We're now in early 2019. The friend that I had mentioned earlier who discovered she was a medium a few years previous after she delivered her baby sent me an invite, I believe, to um, a per another medium's free kind of master class that was happening that day. So I, I signed up. I joined. And it was like in a Zoom call. And I didn't catch the whole thing because I kind of joined. She sent me the invite as it was already happening. But the thing that stood out from this was her giving this example of like, okay, picture a bicycle in your mind's eye. Imagine it. But don't just stop with that. Use your other senses. What are you hearing? Do you smell anything? 
what's around you, who's around you, what's the scenery like, like use all your senses as you see this bicycle. That's what you'll want to do when you're connecting with spirit. If you just see a random image like a bicycle, don't just say bicycle, stay with it and see if you can get anything else. So I had this new tip, this new tool. A few hours later, I'm like, I don't know what I was doing. I think I was writing. I was journaling. And I heard in my mind's eye, call your mom. So I did. No questions asked. Pick up the phone. Mom, I don't know how you're going to feel about this, but I feel like dad is with me and he has a message for you. Are you okay with this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me. What's going on? An hour later, I had done my first reading. So specific, so unbelievable, so highly evidential with things I could not possibly have known. My life was forever changed. The very next day, I created a Facebook page, which still exists to this day. It used to be called Medium Amy Brooks, and now it is the Intuitive Rising Psychic Medium Amy Brooks. I created that the next day, and I it was private at first. I invited, you know, who I thought would be interested, and I said, hey, so I think I'm a medium. Does anybody want to practice reading? And the rest, as they say, is history. I'm going to end it there for my first episode. If you actually listened to this whole one, congratulations. <laughs> you deserve a cookie. Um, that's probably going to be the longest one that I do here. I really wanted to give a bit of my backstory. I wanted to tell you, show you the theme and how all this leading up, everything was connected. Everything was trying to get me to this point. This theme of, but I didn't talk about it. Now I talk about it. Now I share now I do not hold back. I hope you'll join me next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining me for another episode here of the Intuitive Rising podcast. If you would like to continue the chats and join the community, please join us over on Facebook and search for the Intuitive Rising community. All are welcome. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating. If you'd like to connect with me directly, please visit my website at theintuitiverising.com.